Sure. So my early books were all kids picture books. Some of them are Spanish English. Some of them are STEM books, all, all with the intent of teaching something while being entertaining. Um, and then I've got um, short stories and a Western novel and um, self-help book. Um, and yeah, it's been fun to uh, promote them in different ways. I've, I've made a banana smoothie on a, on a news show on TV and talked to a puppet, been interviewed by a puppet. <laughs> the key to that one was don't look at the puppeteer, look at the puppet. <laughs> To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes, we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. Today we're going to speak with Carl Beckstrand. He is a college media instructor a best-selling author of 27 books. His latest book is Abundant Paths Beyond Either-Or Thinking, Fulfilling Same-Sex Relationships That Last. Carl, could you please introduce yourself and let people know just a little more about you, please? Sure. Thanks, Ed. Happy to be here. So I was uh, born and raised in San Jose, California, um, youngest of four kids. I uh, lived abroad for a couple of years in South America, got an undergraduate degree in journalism, a master's in political science, and yeah, I've been pumping out books for the last 20 years. Yeah, cornucopia. That's, <laughs> that's a good, well-rounded life for sure, Carl, and many of us miss it. So why? Why do so many people miss that well-roundedness? Oh, boy. Well, that's, that's presuming that I'm as well rounded as I sound. <laughs> but, well, uh, let's presume. <laughs> well, I think uh, someone has to make a conscientious effort to um, develop intellectually, spiritually, socially, physically. And, um, and it's easy to neglect one or more of those areas. Yes, it is. Uh, I agree 100%. So talk to us about your new book first. Let's wrap that up and find out why you wrote it, what it's about, and the meaning behind writing it. Sure. Well, it's, um, it's come from things that I've learned over the years and my experiences and my relationships. And I hadn't really planned on publishing about my personal life at all, but I had a friend tell me that the things I was learning, especially in the last four or five years, were so unique um, and profound that um, I thought I should share and not be selfish. <laughs> so, and yeah. even as I was writing the book, I found new insights and new perspectives that, that just kept increasing. And um, by the time the book was finally published, 
I had learned so much from writing it. I had a, um, I had an interesting childhood. I was exposed to sexual activity as a as a young boy. I was eight years old, exposed by a peer. Um, was sexually active on and off for years and years, and um, got to a point where I was out of control. I mean, I would swear to myself that I wouldn't go to a certain hookup place as a youth, and I would end up there that same day. And so it took me, um, you know, counseling and group groups and other processes to finally get to a place where I wasn't out of control anymore, but I wasn't healthy. I wasn't, I didn't have healthy relationships for decades. And so um, just in the last five years, I, I stumbled across some, some things that gave me insights. Um, one, how to make relationships last, which I'd failed at for years. And the other is to how, how to have um, them be deep and fulfilling. And so um, having discovered those things, I felt like I had to share. Well, that is profound because what you ultimately discovered is truth. Mm -hmm. And sharing truth is so valuable, no matter where we are in our life, because being truthful first with ourself, it's so much easier being truthful with others. Yeah. So when, when you found that truth, how big of a shock was it and how hard was it to break through that barrier to just be truthful? Yeah, it was a huge shock. Um, but you're right. Truth is essential for any kind of growth or progress. And so part of my um, not being out of control in my sex life had to do with being honest with other people, you know, sharing my stuff. And um, I think that's a really critical step if you want to progress and move on. Um, but yeah, one of the truths that was the biggest surprise for me in the last few years was that, um, I mean, I'm a person of faith. And so I felt like for much of my life, God wanted me to put blinders on and just get to the grave without being a crazy sex addict anymore. You know, I thought that was what he wanted for yeah. me. But I discovered that God really wanted me to have fulfilling lasting deep relationships and even with those of my own sex but it wasn't uh the way that i had pictured it it wasn't it wasn't with the way the world often tells us that good relationships look so yeah i mean a few years ago i felt like god was saying go out meet men have relationships with men just don't be what you were before and figure something new out. And I did. And it was better than anything I ever experienced. So, so how does that relate to your spiritual out, your spiritual growth uh -huh. and your religion? Because your religion is Mormon. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was raised in a Mormon family, so it, it was kind of a shocker to many of us when they opened up to same-sex marriages and all of this. So what what was that like, and what how does that play a role in your life now? Well, I should clarify, and, I, and of course, I can't speak for the church. The official name of the church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I'm not a spokesman for them. But my understanding is they supported the new gay marriage bill um, because it protected religious freedom. So they believe in, in freedom 
for people to do what they want, but also freedom to to worship. And they don't want freedom of religion to be infringed on by by marriage rights. So this bill kind of tackled both. Yeah. Well, you know, our our world has been desecrated lately with this polarization, this political output, you know, PR, you, you have to be politically correct. And, you know, there is not a lot of truth anymore. It, it's difficult to find it in our world. Yeah. And just because we don't agree doesn't mean we have to disagree. And a lot of people tend to want to butt heads and clash instead of understanding who each other are. And there's meaning. There's always been uh, this homosexual behavior in our world. Right. And I, I used to get very because I was scared, you know, I didn't understand. And so I was very offstandish and very defensive about my position. Interesting. It took a long time to change that and open up to understanding what Christ is actually saying about love mm -hmm. and understanding there are different types of love. You speak about that there's different types of love could you talk to us about that a little bit yeah thank you that's a, a really important question um in my book i try to um demonstrate that there's almost as many kinds of love as there are people almost as many ways of being a human being as there are people <laughs> and so yeah. when we start to compare forms of love we're doing ourselves a disservice in fact, I, I say in the book that um, the homophobia that we've experienced the last 150, 200 years has caused a lot of damage. I think um, there's a fallacy out there that if someone marries, that even in a traditional heterosexual marriage, if they marry, the wife can have bosom girlfriends she shares everything with, but the husband has to abandon his social life and have his wife be his world. And that's not helpful. And that wasn't the norm 200 years ago. In fact, when you see movies of old times where the women hung out with the women and the men hung out with the men, it wasn't because of social mores. It was because women often prefer the company of women and men often prefer the company of men, regardless of sexual orientation. Right. Yeah, there, there has been a phobia related to this for a long time. And my wife and I, we were speaking earlier about it and I, I really think there's a hypersexualization to this yeah. phobia. And, and not only with uh, same-sex marriage or any of that, it's heterosexual too. Yeah. And we, I have we really, that. yeah, I, I'm really curious about that because a lot of, there has been this increase in our world. And I, I know you kind of, show more of a moral control and and that's actually what our community needs is it's okay to be who you are but let's not hypersexualize the nature of things so it pollutes and misunderstandings occur that way what is your take on that 
So I believe that we are a hypersexualized society, and I think it's because we don't we no longer recognize the infinite forms of relationships that are out there and the kinds of love that are out there, not just pairing kind of love, not just familial kind of love, but there's many, many kinds of love. And I think um, being able to relate on a deep level with someone, even of your own sex, is not only healthful, but an, a legitimate need. And to pretend that that need isn't there, you're going to start to get other kinds of impulses and compulsions because you're not, it's like being um, dehydrated right. and feeling like you're hungry. If no amount of food is going to cure your dehydration, if you can't identify what you're really lacking, you're always going to be needy. That's right. So, yeah. So that's part of part of what I have discovered is that um, we have legitimate needs for familial relationships, for, for pairing, for friends, for other kinds of relationships. And they're all legitimate. And if we pretend like we don't have certain needs, then we start to, um, you know, sometimes we're subject to workaholism or gambling or other compulsions. That, and we don't really right. identify what's really going on inside. In fact, the libido, I think, is not so much um, a gauge of sexual desire as it is a gauge of emotional need. For me, my libido is an indicator of how well I'm meeting my social needs in general. That I haven't heard that take before, so that's very interesting. And you know, we we really have to dig deeper and uh, bridge the divide that's occurred, so we can understand our fast-growing culture. Yeah. It's changing very rapidly nowadays because of all of the technology and the social medias. And how do we? get this bridge built without a lot of the destructive behavior that usually goes along with bridging the divide. Yeah. Well, technology is a two-edged sword. It's a great blessing and it can also be a burden. But I found that um, it's easier nowadays because of technology to find like-minded people. And so when I started a search to find guys who didn't want to get sexual with me, I found them. It wasn't easy at first, but there are a lot of people out there who yeah. value relationships that are not sexual. And for me, the other astounding thing and illumination I had was that once my emotional needs were being met, I was no longer exercising a lot of control or, or um, fighting any kind of temptation because I was feeling fulfilled. So at first, when I started to hang out with guys, um, I, was, I had kind of been a recluse for 10 years. Um, and I was so terrified of going back to an out of control lifestyle. It was really difficult for me to, to break out and be social again. But once I did that with no sexual agenda, I was amazed at how quickly I encountered the connection I'd always craved, even as a young man and never encountered when I was sexual. Um, even when I felt like I was in love, the sexual relationships did not meet the emotional needs. And so, um, so yeah, it was it was very astonishing. One that I could feel so fulfilled, and sex wasn't even in the picture. And two that I wasn't fighting temptation. It wasn't like I was exercising this great moral control. No, I was just feeling great. Why, why change anything? Yeah, I really think there's a big, big aspect to that where 
a connection. You actually talk about it where there, if a same sex person, you, there, there's automatically going to be like a, if you're involved sexually, if mm -hmm. it's a sexual thing and you're same sex, there's this bonding issue. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that. Well, I think many um, straight men understand how profound a same-sex male friendship can be. And a lot of gay men don't, don't appreciate it because they're distracted by the euphoria of orgasm. Um, ah, interesting. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Even um, women acknowledge more readily than gay men, I find, that um, same-sex relationships are valuable and not necessarily, they don't have to be sexual. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's very valuable to understand. All relationship doesn't have to be sexual. Yeah. And a lot of the time we, we see these, even a father-son actually giving a father-son hug, in a passing, it's automatically hypersexualized. There's no context in the picture, but yet they're gay. And and that really is a disease in our culture right now, this hypersexualization. And not only in that context, but in our children and every aspect of our life right now. MTV brought that on pretty good, I, I think. But you know, it, it, it's easy to place blame like that, but really it's our acceptance of that creeping culture. Yeah. And now I think we're at this point where we're at a head here and all of that festering is boiling out of it. And we need to get through this without a big war type mentality it doesn't have to be that way we have to understand each other and understand relationships better yeah i've um i've walked down the street in public holding a man's hand and at first i thought oh i don't want to like set a bad moral example to children and then i realized that i'm not the person who's teaching children that there's a sexual relationship between two men holding hands you go to the middle east or italy you know they'll hold hands and kiss you know men will hold hands and kiss each other and they're not even gay <laughs> so i think we've right we've out of our fear we've we've run away from that and i think that's caused us to be unhealthy in many ways yes yeah i i I really agree with that. So, you know, we we have this culture that really is plagued with a lot of nasty thinking and all of that, but you are kind of countering that with your publications and your books. Let's wow. segue into that and talk a little bit about some of the meanings behind your publications. And, and before we get into that, I, I really want to understand how it felt to be interviewed by a puppet. Because oh, you saw that video. <laughs> I, I love it. 
you know, <laughs> and and this is genius and it's marketing in the same aspect. Yeah. But yeah, these are fun ways to bring people in and lure them with curiosity. Sure. Talk to us about what's involved with all of that. Sure. So my early books were all kids' picture books. Some of them are Spanish-English. Some of them are STEM books. All, all with the intent of teaching something while being entertaining. Um, and then I've got um, short stories and a Western novel and um, self-help book. Um, and yeah, it's been fun to uh, promote them in different ways. I've, I've made a banana smoothie on a, on a news show on TV and <laughs> talked to a puppet, been interviewed by a puppet. <laughs> The key to that one was don't look at the puppeteer, look at the puppet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that would be a struggle, you know, but fascinating and genius in its uh, attempt to get the word out. That's for sure. And and that really lures a younger mind in a little bit to mm -hmm. accepting what you're presenting in your books. So talk to us about the multicultural aspect and what you throw into your writings. Sure. I remember being a kid. Um, San Jose, California is a very cosmopolitan place. It's Silicon Valley. So there's people from all over the yeah. world there. And I remember reading books as a kid and a lot of the characters were blonde haired and blue eyed. And I thought, this doesn't reflect the world that I see. So I determined that if I ever published um, kids books, that they would reflect the real world and people of color and different cultures. So yeah, I try to include That's that in, nice. in all of my books. Um, I also have a book, um, a nonfiction series on immigrant children, um, people who immigrated from South Africa, Sweden, Scotland, as children, and the, the obstacles that faced. And I find that they're very inspiring um, because you see these 9, 10, 11-year-olds facing enormous opposition and obstacles and being courageous. And it's a great, it's a great lesson, not just for children, but for the adults who read them. Yeah, you've got a good library up, and it's very interesting. So do you work with other published authors, and how how does that work for you? So most of my books I write myself, but I have collaborated. Like for the Western novel, um, it was a collaboration with another author who was great at um, getting the details, and I was great at the big picture kind of thing. We won an international book award for it, so that was great. Awesome. Um, but typically Congratulations. I don't. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> typically my collaboration is with illustrators. Um, and it's fun to, to find different yeah. talent around the world and um, see what kind of ideas they'll come up with for my story. I've also illustrated about five of my own books, but it's... Um, oh, really? Yeah, I studied art for years, so but I'm not a professional, so I usually hire a professional illustrator to do my books. And it's great to see what they do, the ideas they come up with and collaborate yeah. with them. Yeah, it's awesome. Some of the artwork and talk about some of your better collaborations with some of that artwork with the illustrators. Sure. Um, one publisher early on, I worked with a couple of publishers and then I started my own company and did all my publishing after that. But um, one publisher found a great illustrator fresh out of college. Um, she, she did the first um, nonfiction immigrant story of the first immigrant picture book that I had written. And um, that's still one of my most popular books. It's called Anna's Prayer. And um, 
she did such a great job of capturing not just the people but the the feelings and the and the emotions that the child was experiencing as an immigrant coming alone to America. Um, gosh, other collaborations. I've worked with an illustrator in Spain who does lots of spooky stories. So he did a mystery for me and he's done an astronomy story for me. And um, an illustrator, um, Hispanic illustrator who did a, uh, another true story about my dog, <laughs> really brought it to life. Um, and it's uh, another tale of courage and friendship. So I try to yeah. I try to make all of the the books inspiring in some way to lift people. Yeah. Uh, so the bad bananas book. Yeah. Who who helped you illustrate that, and how did you come up with that aspect about a banana being tattooed and yeah, know, a hair? I, I get ambushed by book ideas. You know, they don't leave me alone until I write it down. And this one was about a gang of bananas, you know, a rough, rough bunch with sticker tattoos and wild hair and piercings. And actually, a friend of mine that I grew up with, Jeff Ferber, um, in San Jose, uh, we grew up in San Jose, and he illustrated that for me and um, did a great job. And my editor's the one who suggested that I make it a cookbook. She said, if you're going to make a book about bananas, Put some banana recipes in there. So we did, and it turned out really good. Yeah, that news piece was pretty awesome. <laughs> People need to look that up, by the way. <laughs> so uh, let's see. I want to uh, wrap up with, uh, do you have any call to action for our listeners today? Yes. Um so I actually wrote two versions of my latest book. You know, we've talked about abundant paths. And, and when I say abundant paths, it's not to say that all paths are equally valuable. I think there are paths that can be harmful. So I try to, you know, while saying everybody's free and, and learn and explore and figure things out, I'm not saying anything's going to be great for you. Because, I mean, I was in a compulsive lifestyle. It was not good for me. I've also been kind of a hermit, not good. Um, but I also wrote a... a a religious version of the same book called More Than Two Paths. So if you know someone who's struggling with God and faith, who's LGBTQ, this is a good book to help them feel that God really does love them and that God really does have a purpose for them. In fact, if you believe God knows everything, then God has always known that you would feel what you feel. And therefore, he's always had a plan for you to benefit from your experiences and find happiness. So that's kind yes, of and Jeremiah, you know, twenty nine talks about that twenty nine eleven. So you know, God seeks good things. He wants good things for you. He wants you to be an abundant person. Mm-hmm. So we we really have to remember that. Yeah. And you know, I, I really think the most important thing here is forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's words from the cross itself yeah. with a lot of pain and suffering involved. And if a man with that much pain and suffering can say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. I think we have a little bit of leeway here to understand each other a little better. Absolutely. And really, I think our world needs that. 
in the most definitive way right now. It's urgent. And understanding who people are and stop thinking about what they are different. Find out what they have to offer. And you are a spectacular example of this. And I, I just have so much thanks that I want to give you for having the courage to do what you do. It's not easy in this world. So do you have anything you want to add to our conversation before we wrap up? Oh, well, you know, often I'm interviewed about publishing. And so the thing that comes to mind is um, if you're a writer and you have a message, um, don't give up on that message. Get the book out. And then don't give up on the book. Always act as though the book is brand new and keep marketing it. I find that as you treat the book as important and new, buyers do too, and you'll continue to have sales. That's awesome. You know, you've got a lot of experience. So how can people find you and get involved with you? Sure. Uh, my website is premiobooks.com, P-R-E-M-I-O books.com. Also, my books are on Amazon and Walmart and Target websites. All right. Carl, you're you're a fabulous guy, you know, and we want to say thank you so much for sharing your story. It, it's been great. And I can't wait to hear more of what's coming out for Carl in the future. Thank, thank you for you. being part of the Dead America podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way, please share, like, subscribe, and join us right back here next week for another great episode of Dead America Podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon wherever you may be.